As we come to God's word today, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for your help today. I need your help. God, I believe you have given me a word. I pray that I would share what you have given me with compassion, with kindness, but also with courage and conviction. And above all, God, may your Holy Spirit take this word, your word, and speak to our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I read something recently that I thought was brilliant. According to today's regulators and bureaucrats, those of us who were born in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s probably shouldn't have survived because our baby cots were covered with brightly colored lead-based paint, which was regularly chewed and licked. We had no childproof lids on medicine bottles. And when we rode our bikes, we didn't wear helmets. As children, we would go in cars with no seatbelts and no airbags. We would sit in the front passenger seat. Or even better, if it was a special treat, we'd get into the boot. We drank water from garden hoses and not from a bottle. And it tasted just the same. We ate chips. We had pudding every night. And we drank fizzy juice with sugar in it. But we were never overweight because we were always outside playing. We shared one drink with four friends from one bottle or can and no one actually died from it. We would spend several hours building go-karts out of scraps, then go top speed down the hill only to find out we'd forgotten the brakes. After running into a wall or a patch of stinging nettles, A few times, we learned how to solve that problem. We would leave home in the morning, play all day, and as long as we were back before dark, no one really worried. They weren't able to reach us because there were no mobile phones, but nobody minded. We didn't have Playstations or Xboxes. No video games at all. No 99 channels on TV, no DVDs, no surround sound, no mobile phones, no personal computers, no social media. We had friends like real friends we went outside and we found them we played hide and seek and rounders and sometimes we got hit in the head with the ball and that hurt we fell out of trees got cut and broke bones but there were no lawsuits we walked to friends homes we also believe it or not walked to school because it was just around the corner from where we lived We made up games with sticks and tennis balls. We rode bikes in packs of seven and wore our coats only by the hood. The idea of a parent bailing us out if we broke the law was unheard of, as our parents actually sided with the law. And it says this, This generation has produced some of the best risk takers, problem solvers, and inventors ever. The past 50 years have seen an explosion of innovation and new ideas. We had freedom, failure, success, and responsibility, and we learned how to deal with it. Isn't that great? I love that. How things have changed. In the last 30 or 40 years, we have become a culture that has become increasingly obsessed and addicted to safety and security. We want to minimize any and every risk from our lives. We want to stay clear of any 
danger or harm. We want to avoid any and every situation where there may even be the slightest potential of pain or injury. I know there's the occasional nutter out there who loves bungee jumping, free falling out of airplanes or extreme sports. But most of us are seeing rational human beings who just want to stay safe. We have airbags in our cars, alarms in our homes, safety gates on our, for our children, risk assessments on buildings, baggage scans at airports, peanut allergy warnings on food, as well as warnings on hot cups of coffee that the, the coffee is, you'll never guess it, hot. We have vaccinations against diseases, anti-back cleaners, hand sanitizers, filtered water. We have health insurance, car insurance, house insurance, pet insurance. Sometimes I think we should just wrap ourselves thickly in bubble wrap every time we leave the house. Safety has become more and more important to us. And most of the time, that's a good thing. It really is. I'm a husband and I'm a father. I want my family to be safe. I won't reverse out of the driveway until my seven-year-old boy, Elijah, has his seatbelt on. Safety is not a bad thing. I'm not against it at all. But here's the thing. What if we become so addicted to staying safe, so scared of danger, so afraid of anything bad ever happening, so risk-averse that we miss out on the adventure that life was supposed to be and that God created for us to enjoy. That our time on earth here becomes so safe and secure and sanitized that we don't die from a horrible accident, but we actually just die of boredom. In fact, the greatest danger may not be dying at all. It might be that we never actually really fully live. Remember Braveheart. Remember that great line by William Wallace. I'm not even going to try it in a Scottish accent because I will be mocked mercilessly even by my own family. But he said this, every man dies, not every man really lives. Isn't that true? Just because you're breathing doesn't mean you're truly living. And our obsession with safety and security might be causing us more harm than we realize, especially if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Because by its very nature, the life of faith is a life of risk. John Wimber, a preacher from the vineyard, said this, faith is spelt R-I-S. We follow a man who was seen as being so unsafe, so dangerous to the religious and political establishment of his day that he was hung on a cross and executed. We worship a God who constantly calls us from comfort and safety out into the unknown. That's why the most common command in the whole of the Bible is this. Do not fear. Why? Because every time God shows up in somebody's life, he asks them to do something risky, something which is uncomfortable, something which normally terrifies them. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it means taking up a cross. 
If you want to follow me, you're probably going to be rejected and persecuted. If you want to follow me, you will need the boldness and courage to be different, not just blend in with everybody around you. The call of Christ is a call to risk and to be willing to lay down our lives. So here's my concern at the moment, here at the end of May 2020, that we are becoming comfortable with fear. We are starting to accept that being scared is normal. We're becoming comfortable with that which was uncomfortable 10 weeks ago. We're treating our current situation as if that's just the way life should be, is going to be, and we don't expect much different. And that's why the title of this message today is this, I will not become comfortable with fear. That is a declaration I am speaking over my own life at this time. And it's the title of this message, I will not become comfortable with fear. Because when you do become comfortable with fear, you start to live a level of existence which is so much lower than God ever planned or intended for you. You become under the illusion that you're safe when actually you're not. And I want to look at one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture. You will you will know it well. And I, I do believe God wants to speak to you today. I have wrestled so much with this message. If I'm being honest, if another sermon in my bag, in case I, I chicken out and decide not to preach this, I have wrestled with this all week. And yet, in one sense, I know I have to preach it because it's the only thing God has given me. So please, I ask that you would open your heart Hear the spirit in which I'm speaking to you today, not from arrogance, not from recklessness, but from a spirit of simply wanting to say to you what I believe God wants to say to you. God wants to speak to you today, and I pray that your heart might be open to receive what he's saying. Let's look at 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. You all know the story, I'm sure. David, the young shepherd boy, who was overlooked and undervalued by his father and his brothers, is sent down to the battle line to bring provision and food to his older brothers. And he gets there, and uh, and he sees that there's uh, two armies on either side of this valley, the valley of Elah. On one side of on the slope, there's the the Philistines with this huge hulking figure called Goliath. On the other side, there's God's people, the Israelites, led by King Saul. And every day, Goliath would step forward and he would taunt the Israelites and say, send forth your best fighter. I will fight him and whoever wins, we will become subject to you. If you win, we'll become subject to you. If you win or if, 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 if we win, you become subject to us. It was called a representative battle. It was fairly common in those days. It saved huge loss of life and bloodshed. And everything 
about this man was intimidating. Look at what we read in verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. As they listened to Goliath day after day, the the terror builds within them and every ounce of courage is drained out of them. Look at verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. 40 days. Think about this with me. For 40 days, this army stood facing this giant. One day, two days, three days, 12 days, 13 days, 24 days, 25 days. Every day they get up and they stand and they look at this. 35 days, 36 days, 39 days. And they're looking at this hulk, this beast of a man as he taunts them and as he blasphemes the living God. And what did they do? Absolutely nothing. They just stand looking at him. Why? Because they're so terrified. Fear had completely paralyzed every single one of them. What do you think happened day after day as they stood looking at him and listening to his taunts? I think this happened. Day after day, he became bigger. Not physically, but in their minds and in their hearts, he grew bigger and bigger. He became more intimidating. He appeared to be more and more powerful, more and more destructive. There was no point in even trying to fight him because he was totally undefeatable. They felt completely helpless and hopeless, desperate and despairing. Day after day, fear and terror had become so prevalent, so constant in their lives that fear had become normal. They had accepted it as just the way life was going to be. They had surrendered to it. They were willing to tolerate it. They were willing to live with it. What was their plan? That's, that's what I ask as I read the text. What was their plan? What did they think was going to happen? Did they think that on day 41, Goliath would wake up and go, can't be bothered doing this anymore. I think I'll go home. Did they think he was going to lie down and let them win? What did they think was going to happen? They chose to live with fear instead of confronting it. They would rather stay where they were than risk facing the enemy. And that's not surprising because the one person among them who should have stepped forward to fight Goliath was their leader, was their king, Saul. Just a few chapters before this, we read this about Saul. Saul was an impressive man. He was head and shoulders above all the other men. He was tall, tall Saul. He was a warrior. He was a a military man. If anybody should have stepped out to fight Goliath, it should have been Saul. But the problem is this. Saul, their king, their leader, is just as scared and as intimidated as the rest of them. And when those who are supposed to be leaders in any sphere of life, when those who are supposed to be leaders are just as afraid as everybody else and give in to that fear, they don't make 
good decisions. None of us make good decisions when fear is involved. I have never made a good decision when I've been crippled with fear. I have never made a wise decision when I've been overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. Here's what you do when you make decisions based on fear. You live defensively. Instead of trying to win, your goal is simply not to lose or at least to keep what you have. 40 days of staring at this giant threat and all it did was make them more and more afraid. Was Goliath dangerous? Of course he was. No one was disputing that this was a bad situation. People could die. But let me ask you this, was he as dangerous as they thought? Was he as indestructible and as powerful as he appeared? No, not when we know what happened next when David arrived on the scene. Nearly all of Goliath's power came from his imposing presence and his voice as he sought to speak and intimidate God's people. And that is always the way the enemy works. The enemy will always try to convince you that things are worse than they are. He will always seek to intimidate you with lies. He will always seek to magnify the strength of something else compared to your weakness. That's how he works. Day after day, they looked at him. They listened to him and they became paralyzed with fear. Some of you already will know where I'm going with this. On the 23rd of March this year, that's nine weeks ago, the UK went into lockdown because of the threat of coronavirus. There was a real concern that the NHS could be completely overwhelmed and that hospitals wouldn't be able to cope. And so we closed schools, we closed shops, We closed businesses and gyms and cinemas and churches. Pretty much anything that was deemed non-essential, we shut down for the well-being of the community and for the protection of our NHS. We began social distancing. Was that the right thing to do? I think most of us would agree, absolutely, it was the right thing to do. Especially in the light of what we were being told at the time by the scientific experts. On the 1st of April, we were told that in the first wave of this virus, that is the first 20 weeks of the pandemic, even, and this is really important, even with lockdown and social distancing, in the first 20 weeks, we could likely see up to 3,000 deaths here in Northern Ireland. That was a terrifying prospect for all of us. So we were more than ready to accept lockdown and social distancing. It was the right and reasonable thing to do. And every day we would wake up and we would read the, or we would read the BBC Northern Ireland website or the Belfast Telegraph and we would read how many more people had been infected and how many people had died since the day before. We started wearing masks and gloves staying away from our families, avoiding all social contact, sanitizing everything, staying indoors. We have been so responsible with dealing with this over the last nine weeks, and it is a credit to every person 
in this little province of ours. But now here we are, two months later, on the downward curve of that first wave. Will there be a second wave? Let's be honest, nobody knows. Right now we can only speculate. But the first wave, in the first wave, we were told that we could expect up to 3,000 deaths. As of Friday, 501 deaths have been recorded. And let me say, every single one of those is deeply tragic. Every single one of those is heartbreaking. Every one of those represents a family that has lost somebody they love dearly. Our hearts go out to every person who has been affected by this. And we have some people in our own church that that applies to. 501 deaths is awful. But let's just for one moment remove all of the emotion from this and actually really think about where we are now. And that's really hard to do because emotions are high at a time like this. When you're anxious, when you're lonely, when you're afraid, when you're frustrated, when you're fearful, when there's uncertainty, when you're, with all of what's going on, emotions are naturally high right now. And it's so easy that we overreact with anyone that says something we don't like or something we disagree with it. Disagree with. I nearly did it today on Facebook. Somebody I know, another clergy person, posted something, and I immediately it got it, it riled me up, and I just had to pull back and go, I, they, they, "That's their opinion. It's totally different to mine, but they're allowed an opinion, and that's okay." But let, so let's try to rationally think about this, where we are right now with our heads and not just our emotions. We have had 501 deaths as of Friday. And I know we're not at the end of it. But 501 is not 3,000. Thank God. I really mean that. Thank God that there haven't been what has been projected. 501 instead of 3,000 means there are 2,499 families in Northern Ireland right now that are not grieving the loss of a loved one. And I am so thankful for that as I know you will be. That's good news. And I know some of you will say, yeah, but Craig, that's because we did lockdown and social distancing. No, I need to reiterate this. That 3,000 number was with lockdown and social distancing. That came out on the 1st of April in the middle of lockdown. You can check it if you don't believe me. The worst didn't happen, not even close. And I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not blaming the experts. I'm not blaming the politicians. I'm really not. None of us have been here before and we have all been doing our best just to get through this mess and this crisis. So I am not pointing the finger right now. But the projections were wrong. They were really, really wrong. 
501 is not anywhere close to 3,000. And the vast, vast majority of those 501 deaths have been among the very elderly or infirm in care homes and among those with other significant medical conditions. That doesn't diminish the loss one bit. Every death is a family grieving a loved one. But we've had 501 deaths out of a population in Northern Ireland of just over 1.8 million. And from speaking to various doctors, and I have been speaking to some of them, from speaking to uh, managers of nursing homes, and I have been doing that, and even funeral directors, it's clear that a significant proportion of those 501 were already at the end stages of their life. They were not healthy, and it was probably not too long before they were going to pass anyway. 501 deaths out of a population of 1.8 million. Not 3,000, not even the later revised number of 1,500, 501. But here we are two months later, still not allowed to be in the same room with anyone except our immediate family. Not allowed to hug our grandchildren. Not allowed to have weddings. Not allowed to let our kids interact closely with their friends. Not allowed to have church services in a building. Our hospitality and leisure sector is closed and won't reopen anytime soon. We're not allowed to get within two meters of anyone except those we live with. Our economy is crumbling. Small businesses that men and women in this community have poured their lives and their money and decades into building up are being destroyed. Our economy is a mess. Jobs are being lost every day. And let's not forget that the health service depends on a good economy. It is not one or the other. We cannot have a strong NHS without a strong economy. So why? Why is this still happening? Why are we still in the same place almost as we were a month ago? I think that's a really good question. And I feel the tension in even asking that question. I really do. Why are we allowing this to continue? I think it's because we have become comfortable with fear. After nine weeks of living in fear, after nine weeks of living and looking and hearing about this giant, this Goliath called COVID-19, fear has become normal. We have become used to feeling scared and anxious. We've accepted it. You know what? Many people have even started to defend it. So much so that if anyone pushes back against this fear or even dares question it like I am doing right now, they're quite likely to face opposition and even be torn to shreds. That's exactly what happens, David, when he pushes back against fear in this chapter. 
when he steps up to fight Goliath. Look at what we read, verse 26. David arrives in the scene and he hears Goliath mocking God and God's people. And look at what he says in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He sees exactly what everyone else sees. But he hasn't been standing for 40 days having his mind filled with the noise and the images of the threat. So he arrives on the scene and he sees it, but he sees it differently. He sees it from a proper perspective. He sees it as it is and as it should be. Not as a terrifying giant to be tolerated, but as something to be confronted and overcome. Immediately look what happens, but as soon as he speaks up, and challenges what's going on. Look at what happens. Verse 28. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. As soon as David speaks up, as soon as David dares to say something different than what everybody else around him is saying, he gets torn to shreds, even by his older brother, the people closest to him. Notice what he does. He criticizes David's motive. He says, you've just come down here to watch the battle. All you're interested in is being a spectator. I would say, what battle? There was no battle to watch because they were all so scared. He questions his motives. He then questions his value or significance. He says, who did you leave those wee sheep with in the wilderness? He says, you're a nobody. Why should anybody listen to you? Shut up. How dare you? We're the experts. We're the military men. You're just a wee shepherd boy. And he tries to silence him. And then, lastly, he criticizes David's character. Look at what he says. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. It's just got really personal there, hasn't it? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. Was Eliab right about David? Was he conceited? Did he have a wicked heart? Think back to just a few chapters before this, when God selected David through the prophet Samuel to become the next king of Israel. What did God say about David? What was the thing that God loved most about David? That there is a man after my own what? Heart. That's right. A man after my own heart. The thing that God loved most about David was his heart. And that's the thing that others attack because they don't like what he is saying. He's trying to shame David into silence. How dare you even question what we're doing. How dare you even question what we believe about Goliath right now? And in some places, sadly, we are seeing the same thing happen right now. 
anyone who even dares to question the prevailing narrative of we're all going to die, we're all going to get infected, we're all at risk, which has been repeated to us over and over and over and over again for 10 weeks. Anyone who even dares to question that faces ridicule, faces being criticized, faces being attacked, having their character attacked, having their reputation attacked, being told you're putting lives at risk. You don't care about people. You're not being a good neighbor. You're not being a good citizen. You're unloving. You're uncaring. Ten weeks ago, if, if, if we'd have ignored all of the precautions, that would have been the right criticism to give. Ten weeks on, all those criticisms do is expose your fear. All they do is expose your desire that everybody else in this community and everybody else around you stays as scared as you are. Because if you're scared, how dare somebody else not be scared? Think about this. Why would they get so annoyed about David stepping up to do the thing that they didn't want to do? Seriously, why would you get annoyed about somebody who's willing to do the thing that you're not willing to do? Maybe that's exactly why. Because by stepping up and refusing to be controlled by fear, David was showing them all just how comfortable they had become with the current situation. They were tolerating the intolerable because they were afraid. Was David taking a risk? Of course he was. He could have been killed. We know how the story finishes. David didn't when he was living in that moment. Goliath could have walked forward and killed David. There was risk. The thing is, there's always risk. At the beginning, Lockdown and social distancing were justified by telling us that we needed to slow the spread of the virus and flatten the curve. Do you remember that phrase we used to hear constantly? We need to flatten the curve of infections because it was keeping the NHS from being completely overwhelmed. That was the right thing to do. We have achieved that. Well done to us. And I mean that. But now we're being told that the goal is no longer to slow the spread or to flatten the curve, but to eradicate the virus completely. And until we have a vaccine, which everybody can take, we can't go back to any sort of normalcy. Why? Because there's a risk involved if we don't. Of course there is. Life is full of risk. Every time you get into your car, it's a risk. And I've seen some of you driving, and for some of you, it's an even greater risk, not just for you, but for everybody else. Every time you get onto an airplane, it is a risk. Every time you get into the shower, it's a risk. Every time you go to a swimming pool, it's a risk. Every time you tell somebody you love them in those early days of relationship, it is a risk. Every time somebody gets married, it's a risk. Everything we do has risk. Life is full of risk. The truth is this. 
many of you who are listening to me right now have had coronavirus already and you didn't even realize it because your symptoms were so mild. Of those who get infected with the virus, the recovery rate in the UK is around 99 to 99.5% recovery rate. I have checked that. I have checked all of these things three or four times before I wanted to share them with you today. That's from the BBC website today, not from somebody's post on Facebook. Many of you will likely get it in the next six months, and like millions of others, you will completely recover. So yes, there is a risk, especially for those who are very elderly especially for those with pre-existing medical conditions. We must do everything we can to protect and shield those who are most vulnerable in our society. That is the right thing to do. It is the caring thing to do. And it is a Christian thing to do. Risk is normal. Being reckless is not normal. So let me be clear, I am not advocating stupidity and recklessness, but there's always risk involved. It was a risk for David to confront Goliath. But do you know what was even more risky? For everybody to do nothing. Because if nobody stepped up and pushed back, a day would very likely come when Goliath and the Philistines would either conquer the Israelites or kill them, just because they had done nothing. So yes, there is a risk in stepping out. But there is just as much of a risk, if not a greater one, in staying in the one place safe and doing nothing. The truth is, there is a risk in loosening restrictions. Some people will die. That's the sad reality. But at this point, and I want you to hear me right now. Please listen to me. At this point, I am absolutely convinced that the greater risk is that we become comfortable with fear and stay where we are. I'm not saying open everything tomorrow. I'm not saying pack everyone into shops and gyms and churches. That is not what I am saying. We need to do the right thing and we need to do it in the right way. What I am saying is this. If things don't change very quickly, the devastation caused by lockdown and by social distancing will be many times greater than any harm done by the coronavirus. Countless lives will be lost through mental health problems, suicide, job losses, poverty, addiction, domestic abuse, child abuse, anxiety, loneliness, and many of the other side effects directly related to these measures that are in place right now. That's not just my opinion. Even just today in the Belfast Telegraph, a local suicide prevention centre says that they are at risk of being overwhelmed in the weeks ahead. They're already starting to see it. 
One region of the world in Northern California, the suicide rate is higher than the coronavirus rate right now. I am not just speculating here. What about the impact on our kids? We are teaching our children to be scared of the world. We are teaching our children to be scared of other people. We're teaching our children to look at other people as a potential carrier or themselves as a potential carrier, to start seeing other people as, as people to be avoided and kept distant from as, as a source of infection. We're disrupting their education. We're isolating them from playing with their friends. And we're damaging their immune systems, their little immune systems, by keeping them out of sunlight and keeping them indoors. You know, I love that song, The Blessing. It's great to sing The Blessing. And may His blessing be on our children and their children and our children's children from generations. We're singing that. But what if at the same time as we're singing The Blessing, we're destroying our children? Because we're not allowing them outside to play. We're destroying their immune systems. We're destroying their little minds. We're creating trauma in them that the world is a scary place and that they have reason to spend the rest of their life afraid. That is real, folks. We have now reached the stage where the cure is going to kill more people than the virus. Where lockdown and these restrictions are going to be responsible for more lives being lost than COVID-19. And a life lost to suicide or abuse or addiction is no less valuable than a life lost to coronavirus. Fear is not a virtue. Let me repeat that. Fear is not a virtue. But we have turned it into one. We've all been talking about the new normal. That's the phrase, the new normal. I can't help but fear that the new normal is just one where we're all afraid. If that's the new normal, you can keep it. That is not what God's intention for his people and for this world is. The Bible only speaks positively about one kind of fear. Every other kind of fear it speaks negatively about but it speaks positively about one kind of fear, and that's a fear of the Lord. Not being scared of God, but having a holy awe and reverence for Almighty God. And we have lost that in our culture. When off-licenses are deemed essential and churches non-essential, that tells you something about where the fear of the Lord is in this community and this culture. And when you lose a fear of the Lord, when you lose a healthy fear of God, you will start to fear lesser things. Anytime we lose a fear of God, we start to fear things that are not as important as God. As Christians, we are called to be caring and compassionate. But we are also called to be men and women of courage and conviction. The early church were known for their kindness, but they were also known for their courage. They were known to be a blessing, but they were also known for their boldness. The church today wants to be known for being nice. The modern church desperately just wants to be popular. Someone once said that, If Jesus had preached the same message as much of the modern church preaches today, he would never have been crucified. I think that's true. Here's the thing, and I'm going to finish. The Bible makes it very clear 
that in the last days before Jesus returns, things are going to get worse. Just read Matthew 24. As a church, we've been studying Revelation and daily devotionals. I think as you read Revelation, you see, and I hate to tell you this, things are going to get worse in the years and decades ahead if Jesus doesn't come back before then. What we are experiencing now is nothing compared to what lies ahead. So maybe as God's people, we need to develop courage. We need to to develop boldness. We need to teach our children to be risk takers, to be brave, to be courageous, to be bold. Otherwise, they will not make it through the years ahead. There will be no witness for Christ because we will all be too scared to leave the house. We need to make a decision. Fear is not going to become normal for me. Fear is not going to become acceptable for me. Fear is not going to become comfortable for me. We need as a church to be less concerned with being popular with the world and we need to be a prophetic voice at this time. But some of you will still say, but Craig, it's so risky. We we might die. Let me respond to that very real question. Firstly, we're all going to die. Sorry to break that to you. But each of us are carrying something called mortality. The mortality rate has never changed. One out of one people die. It's just a matter of how we die and when we die. But we're all going to die. The real question is, how do you want to spend the rest of your life? Afraid? Isolated? Depressed? Unemployed? Anxious? Fearful of other people? Scared that you might catch a disease if you get too close to anyone? You know, I find it sad and ironic that many people, many people have become so afraid of dying that they've been willing to stop living. Many people are so afraid of dying that they've become willing to stop living. And as I finish, let me ask you, why are you afraid of dying? Really? Why are you so afraid of death? I can look you honestly and tell you right now, I have absolutely no fear whatsoever of death. None. Why? Because Jesus Christ, God's son, died. And he rose again. And he has conquered death once and for all. And so when I die, it is not the end. But because I have put my faith and trust in him, I simply pause and transition into eternal life with the God I love forever. I am not afraid of death. Will I miss my wife and son? Of course I will. They'll catch up with me. I'm not afraid of death. The question isn't how will you die. The question is how will you live? Scared, anxious, afraid, isolated. Or with courage, with boldness, with faith. Knowing that there is a risk. 
But I would rather live my life with risk than exist in a state of fear for the rest of my life. David faced what everybody else was facing, but he chose courage over fear. And we know how the story ends. Look at what we read. Verses 48 to 50. As the Philistine asked Goliath moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards, David runs towards the battle. Everybody else is running away. David ran towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. How do you want to live? Will you live controlled and contained and consumed by fear? Or will you choose today, will you join me in choosing and and saying this, making this declaration, I will not be controlled by fear. I will not become comfortable with fear. I will not allow fear to become normal in my life. And what about if you die? Are you ready? Are you ready? Because we're all going to die one day. And if you died right now, could you be absolutely certain that you will go to heaven? I can. And I don't say that with arrogance. I don't say it because of anything I've done or how good I am. Believe me, if it was based on my behavior and my past and my present, I would be in hell. I base it on God's word. It says this, Jesus Christ died for your sins. And through faith and trust in him alone, you can have eternal life. Will you receive him today? And if you do know him, will you choose to say no to fear? Will you choose to say yes to life? Would you pray with me right now? Father God, today I choose life. I choose to say no to fear. Fear will not become my normal. I will not become comfortable with fear. And today I submit my life to Jesus as the Lord of my life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus, give me courage. Fill me with your spirit and help me to follow you into a risky and dangerous world. But knowing that you go before me, you go with me, and you are protecting me. And ultimately, my life is all about you anyway. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.